you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, to a passage of Scripture that I want to return to that we first began to look at last week. Some of you are familiar with the name John Forbes Nash, who was really a brilliant man that made a name for himself in the field of mathematics, game theory, even winning the Nobel Prize for his contributions in 1994. But John Nash was born in 1928 in Bluefield, West Virginia, and he died just a few years ago, back in 2015. But during his illustrious career, Dr. Nash taught at MIT, and he served as senior research mathematician at Princeton University, and several of his theories are still widely used in economics today. Well, in 1998, Sylvia Nasser wrote a biography on his life, which she simply entitled A Beautiful Mind. Now, you may not be familiar with the book, but I imagine you're probably familiar with the movie that was based on the book, which starred uh, uh, Russell Crowe as the lead actor. He played John Nash in that movie. Now, as far as the life of Nash, um, remarkably, even though he was a genius, John Nash suffered from a condition known as paranoid schizophrenia. And he would see characters or hear voices which did not exist. And when he listened to those voices, they became destructive to his life. They could turn him into an egomaniac by making him feel like he was the center of the universe. Or they could prey upon his deepest fears and insecurities, which made him suspicious of his loved ones. Now, doctors will tell you that treating this condition is extremely difficult because the voices heard and the people seen appear very real to the patients who are suffering from this disorder, even appearing as actual people. And sometimes they can't differentiate between what is, from what is real from what is not. And so you have to convince the person that their own faculties of sound and sight are impaired, that they can't trust them, and they have to resist the urge to engage them. Well, through medication and certain practices, John Nash kind of got the upper hand on this, even though he suffered with this issue until his death. But over time, he learned how to test the voices to figure out those which were real from those which were not. In other words, he developed the art of discernment. Now, if you've seen the movie... There is a statement that Russell Crowe's character playing John Nash makes, and here's what he says, and I quote, I'm not so different from you, for we all hear voices. We just have to decide which ones we're going to listen to. I'm not so different from you. We all hear different voices. We just have to decide which ones we're going to listen to. Now, there's a very real sense in which all of us are constantly bombarded with a barrage of voices, and some of those voices are louder than others. Some play to our ego. There are some voices which play to our fears, and these voices come our way through a thousand different avenues and mediums, and that's why it's so important that we possess 
discernment as the people of God. We need to be able to discern what is real from what is false. We need to be able to distinguish the lies that the enemy tries to implant within us from the truth which God has revealed to us in his word. And so here in 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John tells us that we need a spiritually discerning Christianity. Now I mentioned we first began looking at this passage in our time together last week. And in the first six verses of chapter 4, John underscores the importance of a spiritually discerning faith. You will remember at the end of chapter 3, he says that it's the Holy Spirit who assures us of the genuineness of our Christianity by means of his inner witness. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to confirm and affirm within our hearts this truth that we are indeed the children of God. Elsewhere, the Scripture says that it's the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so we come into chapter 4, and the question then to consider is this. What do we do when unbiblical ideas are being promoted by those who claim to speak with spiritual authority? Because that was the issue that was happening in John's day. And so in 1 John, he's dealing with a very real crisis where many had divided the churches of Asia Minor and were spreading these false ideas, appealing to the witness of the Spirit in support of their false claims. In other words, they were coming up with man-made ideas, introducing those ideas to people, and they were signing God's name to those ideas. And so this is why the people of God need to be spiritually discerning. And that's what John is saying here in this passage where he emphasizes the fact that believers need to be able to know the difference between what is true from what is false. So let's read beginning with verse 1, 1 John chapter 4. The Bible says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, the Spirit of God who lives within you as a believer is greater than the spirit of the evil one which is at work in the world. And isn't that a good promise? Amen. They are from the world. Talking about these false teachers. And therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. A spiritually discerning Christianity. This is what the Apostle John is calling for within this passage. Now, I've grouped these verses under three main headings, the first of which we've already considered. The first thing that we notice from this text is this. There is a directive to be obeyed. That's the first thing that's explained there in verse number one. 
And you'll notice in that verse that John uses imperative language, which is the language of command. And he issues this command to believers, and he simply says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. In other words, don't believe every truth claim. And, and this is John's way of really describing a, a, an idea or a statement that is inspired by a spirit or a person who is inspired by a spirit. He's referring to claims of certain individuals who claim to speak authoritatively into our lives. You think about charming personalities and popular ideas that could sort of be distilled into a slogan. This was just as much an issue in John's day as it is in our own. And popular acceptance of some idea is no proof of the truth of that idea. And yet it amazes me that in spite of this fact, people still often believe something simply because a person says it or a certain group of people say it. And you often see this phenomenon pronounced throughout cultural icons and in the heroes that are upheld by today's culture. They promote certain ideas and ways of living which we know are contrary to the Word of God. And yet they tend to be received with such welcome simply, but, but, but it's the, John is explaining why that is here in this passage. And just because an idea is received by the majority does not make that idea legitimate or true. And so John is saying you need to be careful. Don't believe every spirit. Well, what's, he, what's he referring to here? Why, why the language spirit? This sounds somewhat strange to us. Well, the issue is, whether it be true, whether it be false in their teaching, every human teacher is motivated or empowered by something that's often hidden behind the scenes. So John is saying we must not be indiscriminate when it comes to ideas, even if they're popular. Instead, he says you need to test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. So the idea is that he's presenting us with in this text is that popular ideas and often cultural movements, there are spiritual influences at work behind the scenes influencing those movements. How is it that a particular idea can overtake a culture? And people can be so blind and receive that idea and believe that idea as if it were true where we know that that idea is false. Well, the issue is there is a spirit at work in the world behind those ideas. And the Scripture tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this present world system. And as such, Satan and his emissaries are behind so many of the evil ideas which are often masqueraded and paraded around as truth in our time. And the people of God need to be discerning as far as this thing is concerned. So he says, test the spirits. The word he uses there means uh, to carefully examine something in order to discern whether or not it's genuine. Now, let me just kind of take a side road here for just a second. Uh, there's this tendency within humanity. Often we see this tendency within the church to want to gravitate toward extremes. And so you take this subject of spiritual discernment, uh, you know, where Paul or John is telling us to be very balanced here, and the Word of God holds us in perfect balance. But here's some extremes. On one hand, people want to emphasize experience to the neglect of doctrinal truth, 
And that's one extreme. And on the other hand, there is this extreme where some folks want to just intellectualize Christianity and rule out experience and that kind of thing. And that's another extreme. I'm glad that Christianity is experiential, aren't you? I'm glad that I've come to possess the life of God through the Spirit who's come to live within me. I've been brought into the family of God. I'm a partaker of the divine nature, and that's an experience. It's a wonderful thing to know that the life of God is within you as a believer. And yet, at the same time, that does not free me from doctrinal guardrails. And that's what the Apostle John is, is saying here within this passage. You know, there's this tendency also that we can get caught up with novelty and attractive ideas that are promoted by charming personalities, ideas which are in vogue with the world. But John is warning us against this kind of thing, and he's issuing this directive, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And his rationale is this, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The world is full of those who are making truth claims but these are false prophets spreading false ideas, and you need to be discerning as far as this issue is concerned. So to be a spiritually discerning Christian means that you understand that what a person says is far more important than how they say it. We're living in such a time, an entertainment-driven time, where people can come across with a winsome, charismatic personality, and you can get caught, in, caught up with that personality and yet totally miss what it is that that person is saying because you're so mesmerized with the way that they say it. That's true for politicians. It's true for men in the pulpit. It's true for popular cultural ideas and those who have big social media platforms. But you need to process and weigh in the balance what it is that the person is saying, and you need to weigh it against the plumb line of God's Word. And that's what John is saying in this passage. So there's a directive to be obeyed. Now, there's a second thing. Notice that there's a deception to be avoided. Directive to be obeyed, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Why? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So discernment is necessary because deception then is abundant. The church in the first century was facing deceptive ideas of those who claimed to be speaking with divine authority, but the ideas that they were teaching were contrary to the truth. And those ideas were expressed in a particular philosophy that was gaining traction throughout the first century world, and it was a philosophy known as Gnosticism, which really was nothing more than a pseudo-Christianity throughout the Gentile world. That word Gnosticism comes from a word that means gnosis, which means knowledge. And so Gnosticism taught that the way to salvation was through some secret superior knowledge. So you had these guys that were coming along and they were saying, well, I hear what John's been preaching. And I hear that simple apostolic message that Peter had been preaching and that Paul had been preaching. The faith that's been delivered once for all to the saints but you see, that you guys need to know that there's, some, there's more to it than just what you've heard. Let me let you in on some secret knowledge. And if you really want to have an encounter with the divine, then you need to follow my logic here, and you need to buy into this wisdom here. And so you had a guy by the name of Serenthus, who was a popular teacher in Asia Minor, and he introduced this idea that said that 
there was a difference in Jesus, the man with, from Christ, the Christ spirit that came upon the man when he was baptized, but left him before he was crucified. So you had these guys like Serenthus and others who went out from the churches who bought into this false idea and they were preaching a Jesus. But listen, it wasn't the Jesus that John and the apostles preached. It wasn't the Jesus that is revealed through this uh, apostolic body of doctrine that's been handed down to the church, preserved in the New Testament. So this is why John is saying what he does in verse 2. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the Jesus that these Gnostics were preaching was not the same Jesus that John and the apostles had all bore witness to. In fact, here's what Jesus said. He said that the Holy Spirit, John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things which are to come. Now listen to this. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. So the sign that a person is really spirit-filled will not be that they walk around talking about how spirit-filled they are, but they're going to be a Jesus man, a Jesus woman. It's all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But there's also a criteria here. What Jesus are you talking about? Is it the Jesus of Serenthus and the Gnostics, which denied his deity, which denied his humanity, which was not the Jesus of the apostles? It's not the Jesus that we worship. It's not the Jesus that we see revealed right here in the pages of God's word. It's a different Jesus. Notice John is very specific here. He says that, that the Spirit of God, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is from God. And, and, and so that's the criteria there, in the flesh. Is this the Jesus, John is saying, the Jesus that I've been preaching? If it's another Jesus, it's a false gospel. So that word confess that he uses there, both in verse 2 as well as in verse 3, this is an important word. It's the word homologia in Greek. It's a word that means to say the same thing. Uh, same logic. It's the same word that John uses back in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, we know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to confess your sin? It means that you quit making excuses for it. You don't try to justify it. You don't try to redefine it. You repent and you confess it. You say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. That's what that word homologia means there. Well, now he's using this word and applying it to this confession of who Jesus is. To confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The one who confesses Jesus Christ is agreeing to the same truth concerning him that Scripture bears witness to. It also has this idea of pledging allegiance to him. And so John says that any idea which denies this apostolic witness or the doctrine of Christ as laid down in the Scripture, it's patently false. 
In fact, he says that it's the spirit of the Antichrist which is already at work in the world. Now, we tend to think of Antichrist as being a word, uh, one who is in opposition to Christ, one who is openly hostile toward Christ. And while that's certainly true, it's more than that. What is this spirit of Antichrist? It's not so much a denial of him, it's a misrepresentation of Christ. That's what it is. It's someone who wants to come up with their own ideas of who they think Jesus is and then sign Jesus' name to those ideas. And folks, that's the kind of thing that's happening throughout so much of the contemporary church in our day. People who are using Christian phraseology in the language of the church and they're talking about God and they're talking about Jesus, but they're embracing ideas which are unbiblical and not in keeping with the biblical revelation of who we know him to be. So this is the spirit of Antichrist. And, And so one day this spirit is going to manifest itself in a man who's going to arrive on the scene. And he's referred to as the man of lawlessness by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist. But what John is saying here in 1 John is that the spirit of Antichrist, which will one day become embodied in a man and a system, that spirit is already at work in the world today. And it's been at work in the world since the earliest days of Christianity. I mean, just as soon as the risen Jesus sent his disciples out into the world with the message of the gospel, so also did the evil one send his emissaries out into the world with a message of a false gospel. And so that's what Satan tries to do. He wants to counterfeit the truth so as to keep people blind and in the dark concerning the truth. So John's readers needed to be aware of this Deception and these dangers posed by deceivers who arrive on the scene using the name Jesus, but the message that they're preaching and teaching, it is not the gospel message. It is not the kerygma of the New Testament. It is not the message of the deity and the sinless humanity and the vicarious death and the bodily resurrection and the physical future return of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby his rightful place as Lord. That is the message that we've been called to preach. That's the message that the church has been sent out into the world with. So the world is awash with deception. You're a parent, a mom or a dad, you've raised children or are in the process of raising children. You know why this is so important this issue of deception and discernment. Because from the earliest ages, we teach our children to use healthy powers of discernment and sound discrimination. We want our kids to make wise choices, don't we? We want them to be discerning. The reason we do this is because we know that the world is a dangerous place and not everyone who comes along with a smile on his or her face has my child's best interest in mind. And that's what John is saying here to his spiritual children. He's warning them of the dangers associated with those deceivers whom the enemy would use to lead them astray. Which tells me that I've got to avoid some things in my life when it comes to decision making. One thing that I've got to avoid is being motivated by emotionalism in my life. You better be careful if you are prone to make decisions on the basis of emotion. 
because our emotions represent the most shallow part of our humanity. My emotions fluctuate like the ebbing tide. I feel one thing one minute, I feel something totally opposite the next. <laughs> so I've got to have something solid. I've got to have something that is grounded. I've got to have discernment. My decision-making needs to be based upon something that's objective and unchanging, and it's the fixed standard of God's own word. So you've got this directive then that needs to be obeyed. There's deception that needs to be avoided. But then notice number three, that John mentions a distinction to be understood. He makes some clear distinctions here in these verses. Notice he says there in verses four, five, and six, which by the way, if you pay close attention, each of those four, uh, three verses begin with a personal pronoun. Verse four, you really see this if you're using the NASB. Verse four begins with this pronoun, you, Who's he referring to there? Well, he's referring to his spiritual children in the faith. He's referring to believers. And so he's making a distinction in these verses. You'll notice verse 5, he begins that verse with this word, they. Who is it he's referring to there? Well, the false teachers and those who've bought into their false ideas. Those in the world. Those who are outside of the faith. And then verse 6, he begins that verse with this word, we. We. Who's he referring to there? Well, he's referring to himself as an apostle and to the apostles. It's the same we that he uses back in chapter 1 as the book begins, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. What is it that makes an apostle an apostle? Which, by the way, if anybody ever comes up to you and introduces themselves as apostle so-and-so, run. <laughs> run. So I want to know, when did you meet Jesus personally? Uh, when did you have an encounter with the, the risen Jesus, like the apostle Paul did, like the apostle Peter did, like the apostle John did? See, that's what, that's what an, an apostle was someone who bore witness to the resurrection. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament were in a place of authority whereby the Holy Spirit revealed to them the Old Testament scriptures, so also the apostles of the New Testament bear witness to the truth as recorded in the New Testament scriptures. And that apostolic gift and calling died out with the apostles who died in the first century. It was essential for God doing a new work, the establishment of the church. So there's a distinction then that's being made here in these verses. By the way, there's a distinction in terms of the content of the gospel. The gospel is not whatever we want it to be. Jesus is not whomever we want him to be. No, there is a spirit of antichrist that may use the name of Jesus and sign Jesus' name to it, but John's clear that that's a false gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here he's making a distinction, not just in terms of the content of the gospel, but the character of those who bear witness to the gospel. You versus they and we. You see this in these pronouns here. So look at that first word there verse, uh, in verse 4. You, you, his readers, they've overcome these false teachers who are spreading their lies. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. 
Now imagine how shocking that must have been to those readers to hear such encouraging words from the old apostle. What do you mean we've overcome these false teachers? There's a lot of people who've gone out of the churches, who've abandoned the gospel, who've bought into Serenthus and his ideas. What do you mean we've overcome them? What about all these antagonists that are being stirred up against us and persecution that's being stirred up against us as the believers? We feel overwhelmed in a world that's against us, and it's into that situation that the Apostle John says, you've already overcome them which means that the church, even though she's outnumbered in the world, she is never fighting for victory in the world, but from a place of victory in the world, and that victory has already been secured for her by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's why Jesus said in John 16, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. If it's peace you want in a world gone mad, you'll find it in Jesus alone. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Oh, but be of good cheer, loved ones, because I have overcome the world. And because he has overcome the world, that means those of us who are in him are also overcomers with him. And that's just good news. And we need to remember this when we're discouraged by all that we experience from the world. I mean, what is it that keeps us grounded, anchored, especially when you face, you're faced with all of these ideas that are coming at you 100 miles an hour? What is it that keeps me? It's the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. That's what keeps me. It's who is keeping me. I mean, either we're all crazy this morning, just a bunch of deranged lunatics this morning, or either the Word of God is true. What is it that keeps bringing me back to fill this sacred desk week in and week out? What is it that keeps bringing you out week in and week out? Is it because you come in and it's just such a good feeling and, you know, the people are so friendly and I just love That's all real and good, and that may be true, but that's not what keeps you. What's keeping you is the truth of the Spirit of God in you. It's who is keeping you. That's the issue. It's who is keeping me. That's the issue. And like I said, either either we're all just a bunch of mental patients or... The word of God is true, and God has done something in my life, in your life, and he's bringing me through all of this because he has an end in mind for me, and that is he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. Which means as the Lord's sheep, I am united to my faithful shepherd who is himself the truth, and the Holy Spirit who lives within me is the spirit of truth. And this is why Jesus has inseparably linked and tied his word to those who are his people. You can't have the church of God apart from the Word of God. And the Word of God, listen to me, the Word of God which will never fail, the Word of God which will never be destroyed, the Word of God which will never be stamped out, 
Mm. That's why the people of God will never be destroyed. That's why the people of God will never be stamped out. That's why the church is the best thing going on this planet. And it's the scripture that gives us this healthy balance. A balance that we're tempted to let go of when we're put under secular pressure. One commentator, I like how he expresses this idea. He says the protection against error is always linked to these two things. An objective standard of truth which grounds us and the indwelling spirit of God who enables us both to understand and apply that objective truth. So how is it that we as the people of God face and overcome the errors and the false ideas of the day? Listen, we do it with the word of God in our hand and the spirit of God in our heart. That's how we do it. That's how we go forth from here and we engage people where we work and where we live. And we realize that we're entrenched in a battle And it's not a battle that we fight physically and with carnal weaponry, but as the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that the weapons of our warfare are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. They're not fleshly. They're not carnal. God's given us the weapon and the warfare of prayer and His Word. And we declare His Word in the power of His Spirit. And He sets the prisoners free. I got so much to say, I got to move on. So folks, listen, all these false prophets that abound in secular culture today, it may not be Gnosticism quite to the degree that the Apostle John was dealing with it in his day, but make no mistake about it, these same ideas are still being propagated in the world. These Gnostic tendencies that says that the Word of God and the Jesus of the Bible is not enough, what you need, you need to embrace the wisdom of the age. You need to buy into the movements that are popular in the culture. And so in that way, it really is a sense of Gnosticism that wants to elevate experience and subjective ideas above the objective standard of God's revealed word. And we've got to be spiritually discerning as the people of God. You, you are from God and have overcome them. And greater is he who is in you than he that's in the world. Well, what about them? Well, verse 5, they, these false teachers, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. If you want to understand why society is the way that it is and why so many false ideas have become so popular among secular culture, then you need to really understand what John is saying here in verse 5. It's always been that way in, in an unbelieving world. These false prophets are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. That is, they speak with the world's authority. And because they cater to what the world already wants because of its unbelief, the world is eager to listen to these false prophets and give them the platforms that they have. That's why they have such big Twitter followings and hashtag movements. This explains the pseudo-false wisdom of so much of the slogans in our culture, like this one, love is love. No, it's not. 
The Bible says God is love. Therefore, he's the one who gives it true definition and shape. He defines what it is. Or what about this slogan? You just speak your own truth. Live your truth. Or this slogan. There is no absolute truth. To which I want to ask this question. Is that absolutely true? <laughs> That's the circular, illogical, false arguments. That's all the world has to stand. And, and people are blinded to this kind of thing. This is why in the halls of government, those in power can come along and they can issue certain policies just like the Biden administration did just this last week whenever it endorsed gender reassignment surgery for children and minors. The Department of Health and Human Services, their Office of Population Affairs, they released a statement. Now listen, I'm not gonna read the statement, but here's just one excerpt from that statement. Medical and psychosocial gender-affirming health care practices have been demonstrated to yield lower rates of adverse mental health outcomes, build self-esteem, and improve overall quality of life for transgender youth. In other words, this is what the youngest among us want, so let's just give them what they want. But you know, there are these pesky little things called facts that everybody in today's culture want to ignore. Facts like this, there are only two genders, male and female. Or facts like this, those with gender dysphoria have a suicide rate that's 19 times higher than the general public after gender reassignment surgery. Amen. So don't tell me that you're interested in, in, in what children and their best interests. No, you're setting them up for condemnation. You're condemning them. That's what you're doing. And how can anyone in their right mind say that this, affirming them in this condition helps anybody? But you know what? That's a surefire way to get canceled in today's culture. Let me ask you a question. How many of you knew who you were when you were 15 years old? If you've lived 15 years since then and now you're 30, I guarantee you, you're a different person than you were when you were 15 years old. I mean, how in the world? Are we supposed to just start raising? <laughs> Little four-year-old comes in and says, I want to be a cat. What are we going to do? Begin affirming them in that? In the beginning, he made them male, and he made them female. And this is authority, and this is divine logic. And you can have as many surgeries as you want to have, but the however many cells you have in your body, your DNA tells you you are either male or you are female. And God has created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The creator knit you together in your mother's womb. And he loves you. And he knows you. And he wants you to come to know him. How can anybody buy into such destructive ideas in the first place? John answers that question in verse 5. They are from the world, 
and they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And the reason for this is that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But this is why the Son of God came in the first place, born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, went to a cross to die for my sin, and rose again on Easter, and one day he's coming back. Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, the constant challenge of those who've been given the responsibility of pulpit proclamation is to resist the temptation to display the wisdom of the world and to continue to faithfully do what Paul said he must do, which was to proclaim the foolish message of a crucified Savior. And there's no use of proclaiming the message of a crucified Savior unless people are brought to an understanding of their sin which renders them in need of that crucified Savior to begin with. So you bypass that, then why would they need a crucified Savior? Alistair says this is the capitulation of our time, a message we've abandoned for something that's more favorable to the sensibilities of an advanced society more soothing to our status as victims or more rooted in the material. And the pastor and the church that abandons its post and adopts secular methodologies and thinks, well, we can win a secular world by being secular ourselves, they're foolishly mistaken. John says in verse 6, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this and by this alone, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The apostolic eyewitness accounts and the truth of God revealed and laid down in the apostolic word of God. Right here it is. This is what you and I have been called to preach and to build our lives upon. Behind every ideology is a prophet. Behind every prophet is a spirit. And behind every spirit is either God or the devil. Therefore, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. Let's stand for prayer this morning. You say, preacher, You sound awfully narrow-minded. Well, I guess I'm in good company because I believe John was pretty narrow-minded. I believe his master was narrow-minded when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, that may cut against the grain of today's pluralistic standards, where modern culture upholds open-mindedness as a virtue that all other virtues must be subservient to. But folks, there is truth and there is lies. Are you going to build your life upon the truth or the shifting sins of cultural ideologies and lies of the evil one? You know, there are some things we shouldn't be so dogmatic about. You know, we tend to fight about those things amongst ourselves in the church. Usually it has to do with music, don't it, Parker? You know? 
But there are some things that we absolutely should be dogmatic about. The truth of the Bible. And I'd rather be divided by truth than be united by lie any day of the week. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Do you know Jesus? Oh, if not, then listen. Why not today in an attitude of repentance and faith? Repent of your sin. Believe that he died for you upon the cross, paying the price for your sin. And that he rose again on the third day. Confess him as your Savior. Confess him as your Lord. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Lord, we need spiritual discernment in days such as these. I pray for our youngest among us today, Lord, our children and our students who are navigating these cultural waters and facing peer pressure and all kinds of ideas coming their way through a variety of means, Lord. God, may we help cultivate within the minds and hearts of our children what it means to be a spiritually discerning Christian young man a spiritually discerning Christian young woman. God, may we value and seize every opportunity that we have to be under sound preaching and teaching. But not just on Sunday, Lord. What we do on Sunday needs to reinforce what we do throughout the week in our homes where we prioritize prayer and the Word of God in our personal lives in a daily sense of dependence upon the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. And this is how You'll use us to be radiant lights in such a dark time. But Lord, we can be of good cheer <laughs> because through Jesus Christ, we've overcome the world and what hope we have in Jesus' name. Amen.